This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Thank you for all your lovely texts and tweets and emails about last week's first part of our new documentary series, The Sunday Shows at 50. Last week in part one, we looked at the birth of Weekend World in 1972, half a century ago. Now it's time to take a look at how David Foss came to dominate Sunday mornings for two decades. This is part two of the Sunday shows at 50. Twenty twenty two marks fifty years since the launch of Weekend World, the flagship Sunday political programme which paved the way for everyone that followed. It kick-started a broadcasting arms race, which meant that what happened on the Sunday sofa became more important than what happened in the Houses of Parliament. This is the story of how political and journalistic careers were made and broken, even how elections were won and lost. We'll bring you the stories of presenters and producers, prime ministers and press officers. Last week, we heard how Weekend World was born. You never went on that programme without being fully prepared. I mean, I would prepare for at least a day. When you say Weekend World, I'm immediately triggered in a good way because I didn't even know I was interested in politics as a as a child. He was a genius in his own way. Very, very, very hard act to follow. Rumours began that not only was I being axed, but the whole programme was being axed. But I felt I'd let everybody down. Now in part two, how the biggest star on TV came to define Sunday mornings. It was this lavish breakfast banquet and that was the deal. What you tended sometimes to forget halfway through that you were on live television. Every now and again I'd be on the show and I'd think, has he actually gone to sleep? But... That's the moment at which he was usually most dangerous. It's not an exaggeration to say that it played a part in the outcome of the election. Essentially, I pledged that we would bring um, British health spending up to the EU average. And I announced it on the programme, you know, Gordon was a little dismayed. We're going back to February 1983. In this year, Mrs Thatcher would win a second term in a landslide general election. Her friend and ally, Ronald Reagan, was in the White House and Culture Club at the biggest hit of the year. Also in 1983, five famous TV presenters sat on a sofa to launch breakfast television on ITV. Yeah! 
Hello, good morning and welcome to TVAM. New studios, a new news service and a new national network. David Frost sat alongside Michael Parkinson, Angela Rippon, Anna Ford and Robert Key to introduce TVAM's offering. They were all big stars, but the brightest was definitely David Frost. He'd become a global figure in the late 70s for his jaw-dropping interviews with disgraced former US President Richard Nixon. Do you, in a sense, feel that resignation was worse than death? In some ways. But no matter how famous the five were and how brilliant an interviewer Frost was, TVAM tanked. Shareholders panicked. The firings started. The serious politics was dumped in favour of Roland Ratt. <laughs> Rodent greetings to all my beloved fans. Amid the weekday turmoil, David Frost found a safe haven in the unfashionable Sunday morning slot. Adam Bolton was a producer at TVAM. Well, I think it was a question of David Frost finding something for David Frost to do. I, I mean, it was a complete shambles, the launch of TVAM. I was there at the beginning. David Frost ended up doing this uh, Sunday programme. But what was interesting about it was that at the time, it looked a little bit desperate. I mean, obviously, there was Weekend World, which uh, was very serious, but we hadn't had the model of a discursive magazine programme on Sunday morning taken from America before. To give you some idea of where David Frost's career was at, while he was trying to secure something at TVAM, he also came close to agreeing to host the game show. The price is right! He had to be talked out of that by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Wilfred Frost, David's son, agrees that the Sunday show we now know was the result of chance. Well, TVAM overall was, was sort of a... Well, it was a failure, obviously. It didn't, it didn't last. And Dad's involvement in it overall was a failure, but with one crucial, uh, very crucial positive that came out of it, which was the Sunday morning show. As we heard on episode one of the Sunday shows at 50, there was a cerebral and rather intense weekend world, which had been on air for a decade. But Foss programme launched in 1983, establishing an easier-going style of Sunday political interviewing. That star didn't exist before and survives to this day. Not that it was easy in the beginning. Things were so tight at TVAM that in the early days, Frost's show was pre-recorded. Only later did it go out live. For some time, Margaret Thatcher refused to appear. And when she did, she got more than she bargained for. T the TBW factor. Now, does the central the office... What? The what? The TV? Well, well, the central office used this phrase, if they I've haven't told... They should have told the you. What? TBW? I'm afraid it means, if you'll excuse me... Not quite. It means actually... That bloody woman factor, in fact. Oh, dear, how dreadful. Isn't that awful? Yes, but they don't tell silly. you. See, they don't tell you. No, you they see. don't tell me, but um, I, I think they don't tell me because they know it isn't true. Labour leader Neil Kinnock, having poached his new spin doctor, Peter Mandelson, from Weekend World, was a regular on the Frost sofa, as Adam Bolton remembers. We'd worked on this killer question, which is, you know, you're a unilateralist party. What happens if you're attacked by nuclear weapons? Uh, and uh, Kinnock uh, just kept on uh, mumbling and David just kept on politely asking the question. And I remember Pat Hewitt coming in. Uh, she was then his press person and saying to me, you know, I think the people are much more interested in housing. Kinnock's problem was he didn't believe in his own policy and had been unsuccessfully trying to get it changed. In any party, certain policy stances develop an almost religious significance. And so I always knew that shifting from unilateralism to multilateralism was going to take a lot of time and effort. In fact, we didn't get the final shift until 1989. It was clear that David was going to raise the issue. 
uh, there was no way of producing a really convincing response to the ultimate question uh, of deterring any enemy, nuclear-armed enemy, from destroying the United Kingdom. And so the interview proved. It's what I thought in the trade would be technically described as a car crash. Indeed, it was a major locomotive pilot. Under pressure, Kinnock ended up saying that it was a choice between exterminating everything you stand for and the flower of your youth, or using all the resources you have to make any occupation totally untenable. However, the interview failed to make a big splash in the Monday papers. It was only when the Tories ran an advert saying Labour's policy on arms with a soldier with his hands in the air that it took off. It's not an exaggeration to say that it played a part in the outcome of the election. That wasn't a singular event, of course. That simply confirmed the suspicion in millions of minds that Labour couldn't be trusted with the fundamental obligation of any government, and that is defence of the realm. The Conservatives had their own problems in that 1987 election campaign, including on Wobbly Thursday, when a narrow poll led to fighting over strategy amongst Margaret Thatcher's top aides. She worried she might even lose the election. Suddenly, the Prime Minister was ready to brave Frost's sofa again. Adam Bolton says that was a crucial moment. That really was the beginning of it, when people actually took David seriously, realised that he could get stuff out of people, and the whole thing snowballed from there. The Conservatives went on to win the 1987 election by a landslide. With the government of this country, this great country, once again... Frost was soon making waves again. An interview with Jerry Adams at the height of the Troubles sparked such tabloid outrage that Thatcher moved to ban terrorist voices from the airways. Having been initially reluctant to do the interview, Frost was thrilled with the media storm. In 1992, TVAM lost the ITV Breakfast franchise and Frost lost the Sunday slot. Margaret Thatcher was a guest on his final show in June. By this time, John Burt, the man who'd worked with Frost on the Nixon interviews and later created Weekend World, had just become Director General of the BBC. He swooped to poach his old friend David Frost and his Sunday show from ITV, having clocked the huge impact it had setting the news agenda. Barney Jones had worked on the 1992 general election coverage for the BBC when he got a call to ask him to launch the new show as editor. His first task? The name. We had a big row over what we were going to call it because we wanted to call it Breakfast News on Sunday or something. And he said, no, no, it's got to have Frost in the title. All my shows have Frost in the title. Frost won the battle, of course, and Breakfast with Frost was chosen. So when we got over that impediment, I was left alone to devise a brand new show and given quite a decent budget to create a studio uh, studio environment, a new studio look and work out how we're gonna how we're gonna do it. In fact, Foss was back in Studio One at Television Centre, where 30 years before he'd hosted That Was the Week That Was on the BBC, sending up the politicians of the day. That was the week that was it's over, let it go. Oh what a week that was that was the week that was From sending them up, he was now interviewing the politicians. In theory, it was a political programme. In truth, this was David Frost, so it was also entertainment. I wanted to produce something that was not dull, that would be fun to watch. The idea of it was that you would have a menu at the beginning that made people think, oh yeah, I'll stay on for this hour, 
even if they the, the main guest was I don't know John Major, and if you're a you're at home, you think, oh, dreary, dreary bugger, I don't really want to give up my morning to to John Major. I'll go off and do some gardening or whatever. If you said we've got Annie Lennox and Desmond Tutu and reviewing the papers and Boy George or whatever, and John Major, there'll be something something in that. Of course, it helped if your host was more famous than most of the people you were looking to book. And after three decades of mixing transatlantic business with pleasure, he had a contacts book to die for and was ready to hit the phones. And Frost says, oh, for our fourth show, we should get someone really big. Who could we get to match this? And I said, well, of course, the big figure would be the American president. And David says, oh, yes, getting hold of George. That would be terrific. What time is it? Mm, lunchtime. Yeah, you should be awake. Um, Let's give it a go. After a few moments, he's speaking to someone I've never heard of and saying, oh, hi, Zach, how are you? How is Christmas? And then he says, oh, is George around at the moment? Any chance we can just get a quick word? And a few moments later, there he is, David Frost, sitting in my scrubby old office, talking to the president of the USA. Frost remained a businessman too, in a lucrative move that seems unimaginable today. He sold the rights to Breakfast with Frost to Sky News, which carried the whole thing an hour after it had been on BBC One. At the Frost family home in Hampshire, his time was precious, and preparing for a Sunday show was not always conducive with having three sons, Miles, George and Wilfred. We would be rushing in to say, come and dad, play, play football, and he'd take a call and it would be, you know, hello, George! George Bush. I mean, that that happened. Not every weekend, but it did happen. And and actually, when we were little, we developed a system where we hung these traffic-like colours outside of his door of his study. And if it was green, we could interrupt him. And if it was red, we couldn't. And of course, as it started, we still thought we can still interrupt him when it was red. And, and then, you know, one of those types of calls did happen and he got rather annoyed with us. Getting the guest was only the start. And sometimes, even with the biggest names, things would go wrong. Bardi Jones remembers a special on the Queen's Diamond Jubilee at Buckingham Palace. I got permission to start with David saying, hello, good morning and welcome, standing in front of Buckingham Palace, actually inside the gates and walking out. And I thought this is great. Uh, it's never been done before. The comms didn't work out. He couldn't hear us and it didn't work. And uh, Jim Callaghan coming live from uh, his home worked perfectly. But uh, Ted Heath couldn't get up the stairs. We were doing him on a link from 20 yards away and he couldn't hear uh, Jim Callahan 20 miles away and the two couldn't hear each other. And Jim Callahan then started laughing at, at Heath and it was awful. No one would ever accuse the Sunday morning iteration of David Frost of being a tough interviewer. Not as forensic as Brian Walden had come before, nor an attack dog in the mould of John Humphreys and Jeremy Paxman, who came later. Peter Mandelson, who went from booking Labour guests as the party's top spin doctor to later appearing on the Frost sofa himself, says his quiet charm could be highly effective. Well, David Frost was always the quietest, calmest and most seductive. Uh, his technique was very interesting. It was as if you were sitting down in a rather comfortable sitting room, you know, w w with a nice sort of cup of tea or coffee or even a stronger drink and were having a chat with an old mate. What you tended sometimes to forget halfway through that you were on live television. And, you know, he was drawing you out in, in a way that... 
<laughs> made you over, overly relaxed. Trevor Phillips, who'd been appointed the head of the Commission for Racial Equality in 2003, agrees. David Frost was difficult. And that was because, though people thought Frost was a bit sleepy and soft and all the rest of it, he actually never asked you a question which was about nothing. It was not, never about him, actually. It was very interesting. You know, sometimes, every now and again, I'd be on the show and I'd think, has he actually gone to sleep? But that's the moment at which he was usually most dangerous because then he'd ask you the one thing you had hoped he wouldn't ask you. It wasn't just the conversation that was cosy. So were the soft furnishings. There were pale yellow sofas, newspapers strewn across the coffee table, a glimpse of Big Ben out of the window and rows and rows of bookshelves which turns out we're all leather-bound dummies. Wake up, it's a beautiful morning. Chris Evans on your radio. The laid-back style shouldn't be confused with being underprepared. In the late 90s and early noughties, Chris Evans was the bad boy of British radio and was thrilled to get the call to join the Frost Sofa. The, the copious notes, because, you know, the Prime Minister was on before me, and then I, I saw handwritten notes with a pen pen on the back of a, a beige folder. Yeah, he just had these beige folders, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was talking about one th- something or another, and I thought, you know, I'll probably get five minutes. Mine, the notes for me, they weren't quite as copious for the Prime Minister, but he'd <laughs> definitely done his homework, because that's what that was, and it was a real sort of lesson for me. Tony Blair appeared dozens of times, first as leader of the opposition and then as prime minister. Well, David Frost was a a, a completely different type of interviewer. He was an interviewer that beguiled you, that lulled you into a full sense of security. And then it's not so much that he he delivered some killer blow, but he would just keep you talking and you talk your way into trouble. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, many times I used to go on David Frost's programmes and I'd come out of it and think, I don't know, give him all those stories. I didn't really mean to do that, but but you would have done it. It would leave his fearsome spin doctor, Alistair Campbell, waiting in the wings with his head in his hands. The Frost interviews were always the ones where Alistair would often say to me afterwards, what did you say? And I would say, what did I say? And he was, and he was like, did I really say that? Yeah. I think also being prepared to submit yourself to tough interviews is an important rite of passage. And it's also an important particularly when you've got a very difficult issue. I mean, you know, when I was dealing with really, really difficult issues, some of the reform issues, you know, post 9-11 issues, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on, some of those interviews were very tough and, you know, very intellectually, politically, psychologically testing. I think it's really important always to explain to people what it is you're trying to do. How can you get through the message to those people? Well, you hope, of course, you won't go ahead without UN. Uh, blessing but if you did how would you how would you try and convert because it's very to put it mildly uncomfortable to go to war with 73 percent against yes but again i think this is because if people are being asked today do you support a war my answer to that is we're not at war today sometimes the stories were not accidental but very deliberate in the last months of the 21st century less than three years after entering power tony blair and gordon brown were deadlocked over plans for reforming the nhs and pouring millions more into the health service to take it up to the European average. The Chancellor would not loosen the purse strings. So on Sunday the 16th of January 2000, Blair went on breakfast with Frost and announced it anyway. If we can carry on getting real-term rises in the health service of almost 5%, our health service spending comes up to the average of the European Union. I announced on the programme, Gordon was a little dismayed, um, but in the end, frankly went along and provided the money so that was good but it was that was a good way of of doing it those programs were places in in those days where 
you made a big announcement in order to make the necessary you know impact this is the sunday shows at 50 next what really happened are the infamous foss breakfasts after the cameras stopped rolling This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Sunday shows at 50. This week, the story of Breakfast with Frost. After the show ended each week, David Frost was always keen to keep the party going, as his editor, Barney Jones, recalls. Frost particularly liked uh, mixing people up. So we might have a little bit of music at the end and Annie Lennox would be playing one of her songs from those days or Ray Davis or someone, David Beckham would be in and saying... Um, Prime Minister, do you know David Beckham or um, Tony Blair? Tony, do you know Annie Lennox? And sit them down together. All this happened over the famous slap-up breakfast Frost laid on after the programme, which became something of an institution. Rubbing shoulders with the great and the good was one of the few perks of William Hague's time as Tory leader in the late 1990s. There was always a good feast afterwards and because the other guests were there, it was always good fun. There was a real value, a real conviviality. You'd learn learn the gossip going to those breakfasts. Jeremy Vine also remembers those breakfasts well. When I was a political correspondent in the 90s, one of the, the shifts you would have to do was to get up really early on a Sunday and go in to Frost. So you'd have to sort of monitor it. And then it's very analogue, you know, why would we have to be there? But then you would package it up for the news. And the treat was you would get to have breakfast with Frost after the show. And it was in Inside TV Centre, which is now bizarrely a branch of Soho House. So this is the madness. But the actual room still exists inside the Soho House building. It was this amazing wood panelled room that they had set aside for Frost. And people would come and they'd, they'd have cloche, silver cloches and stuff with the food. And you'd sit there and it'd be Frost and then it'd be Stephen Fry and somebody else and somebody else. And Frost would smoke a cigar at the table as well. But what was nice about Frost, and I think this is this speaks very highly of him, is the political correspondent would get the breakfast too. He said, go, go and uh, have some breakfast with us, Jeremy, you know, and he feels very special. Even for a man used to the excesses of Britpop Britain, Chris Evans was impressed by the spread. I mean, it just couldn't happen nowadays because <laughs> it was at the BBC. Yeah. 
yeah. and it was this lavish breakfast banquet, and that was the deal. The uh, cloches and sham- sh- actual champagne paid for by the licence fee payer. After David Frosch on a Sunday, he's like, yeah, okay, yeah, you can stick around. Yeah. Frost always wanted to keep the party going, even inviting some of his biggest guests, including Tony Blair, back to the family home in Hampshire. I remember after one interview, we went back and, and played football in David's garden down in his house in the country. That was quite a moment for Frost's sons, including Wilford. He'd get in the car, smoke a cigar on the way down to the country and a smaller contingent of often invited to lunch with other friends. I remember John Major came many times for Sunday lunch, Tony Blair many times, and after lunch, we'd always play football. And definitely Tony was a better footballer than John. And those matches, his his sons were, but, but much to John's credit, you know, he knows what he was good at. He wouldn't play and he would observe. Whereas Tony was a good footballer. Dad was a good footballer in his youth. And Tony's sons were similar age to us. We would have genuine clashes. And I, you know, joked, and I never know how much this is a joke or serious, that Dad and Tony took that more seriously than the interview hours, hours before. We always was... won as well, by the way. That might be fake news, but let's go with it. Some wonder if this meant that Frost was compromised. How could he grill his guests if he was inviting him back for a Sunday roast after? He was unique in a- being able to do that because he was beyond reproach when it came to integrity and track record. If you or I tried to do that in the first year of our careers, it, it would not be okay. But, you know, look through through his extraordinary career. He always asked the tough questions when it was necessary. Wilfred Frost remembers that even with that famous contacts book, his dad didn't quite get every guest he wanted. The Pope, by the way, John Paul Pope, the second and Fidel Castro were the two that eluded dad that he always was annoyed about. Everyone else pretty much he got. David Frost enjoyed a career like no other that ran through the golden age of TV when a few big channels commanded huge audiences. He had a range that stretched from zeitgeisty satire like that was the week that was to the genuinely historic Frost-Nixon interviews to lucrative enterprises like Through the Keyhole. Thank you very much indeed. Hello, good evening and welcome. But his son, Wilfred, believes his Sunday political shows would be the pinnacle. I think Breakfast with Frost, if you were able to ask him as like a full series, would probably be top. This is my take, I guess, as much as his, more than it is his take, because of the longevity and the impact. I mean, he set the political agenda with TVAM, you know, over 15 years at a time when he had already reached the top. I mean, was there any one interview within Breakfast with Frost that made history to the same extent as Frost Nixon? No. And were some of the celebrity type interviews as wonderful and powerful as some of the 60s and 70s stuff? No, because some of that stuff is just unbelievable and coming out in season two of of Frost Tapes with all the entertainers soon. But, you know, I, I think that body of work, over 500 episodes over 12 years, I think is hard to beat as in terms of a whole series. But all good things come to an end. In 2004, Greg Dyke, an old TVAM colleague of Frost's, quit as the BBC's Director General. New brooms were less keen on Frost's cosy style and pressure grew for him to step down. Al Jazeera International was launching and looking for a big-name interviewer. Barney Jones helped negotiate the smooth transfer. In return, he got to launch the show's replacement. For five years, Andrew Marr had been political editor of the BBC and before that, a newspaper editor. Now he was fronting the biggest political show on TV. Well, I'd always been very, very clear that I couldn't do TV, partly because I looked weird 
um, you know, famously being described as the FA Cup in, in, in a shirt. It was 2005, the year Tony Blair won a third term, George W. Bush was in the White House, and James Blunt had one of the hits of the year. You're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, it's true. But, as we'll hear next time, by now it was not the only political show on the block, or even on the BBC. We had a great time because we were allowed to do pretty much anything we liked. So it became a focal point for all politicians, the big beasts of the day. I sort of assumed that it meant, um, it was meant as a message to politicians. Let's tread very gently when you come on this programme because we'll snap you in two. In part three, on the record, Jonathan Dimbleby and John Humphreys on big name guests, big technical problems and the Big Ben Crocodile that stalked the opening credits. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.